right. Usually when they leave, it looks like the place is empty, but no, we're doing good today. Thank you for being here. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, and we're going to be in verses 53 to 58 this morning, uh, what the young man spoke about here on the screen earlier, Matthew 13, 53 to 58. And I want to, I want to set the uh, theme for this uh, by telling you a little bit about uh, something that happens on U- U.S. 36, uh, west of here, out by Atwood, Kansas. Uh, anybody know where Atwood, Kansas is? I'm so sorry for you, but uh, uh, Atwood, Kansas is this little uh, spot on the road. It's nothing like going to McDonald, Kansas, which is fantastic. But anyway, Atwood, Kansas is a town on US 36. Whenever Noel and I go to the farm, we go through there all the time. I've been through there a thousand times. And on the east side of Atwood, uh, there's this company in Atwood. They make these sides for bunker silos out of cement. And somebody decided, let's make signs out of those because they'll last forever. And that's what this one's made out of. On the east side of Atwood, there's this great big sign. And it's, it's kept up painted very well. And uh, what it does is it says, Atwood, Kansas, home of the 41st governor of Kansas. Anybody know who that is? <laughs> somebody said it. Well, yeah, Mike Hayden. Uh, Governor Hayden served from 1987 to 1991. He served one term as our governor here in Kansas, and Atwood is very proud about that. Uh, they, they probably should be. You know, How would you like to be a teacher and know that uh, you have the future governor in your class and you get to teach that person? Well, uh, the issue is uh, a little different this morning as we want to talk about that. Uh, you would think by that sign that the town was pretty proud of the fact that we had a governor of Kansas come out of our little town. We have one of our boys that made it big when he became a man. Uh, We have a a friend, we don't know Mike Hayden, but we have a friend uh, who is the same age as uh, Mr. Hayden is, and from the same county where Mr. Hayden grew up in Rollins County, which is where Atwood is, Uh, who doesn't have a single thing good to say about Mike Hayden. In other words, uh, you bring up Mike Hayden, and he comes out with a bunch of stuff. He used to know Mike, and he used to uh, hang around him, and he says, if you just knew what he was really like, instead of what he was like in public, you wouldn't like him either. I know things about him that if people knew it, they probably wouldn't have voted for him. He just goes on and on about uh, what, what a bad guy Governor Hayden is. And uh, he said, I never voted for him. I wouldn't have voted for him if he would have got a, a second term. I wouldn't have voted for him. The point is, it is hard for hometown people to be happy for an accomplishment when it wasn't them. Uh, We do find it easier to weep with those that weep than we do rejoice with those who rejoice. These people uh, know who this person was when he wasn't so gubernatorial in his actions like we would expect a, a governor to be. Outsiders don't have that knowledge of him, and they tend to celebrate that person's accomplishments. I didn't know the man, didn't know him at all. Uh, I probably voted for him, but the point is, there's people that knew him and knew him well that said, boy, you shouldn't have done that. Well, the same kind of issue is here with Jesus this morning, except Jesus was not flawed in any way as a teenager or a young man or some kind of a businessman. And maybe that's what the crowd didn't like about Jesus. He has always been better than we have. 
and we are tired of hearing about it. And I don't know if that really happened or not, but why are they so opposed to Jesus? They say, we know your family, we know what you're like. Maybe they were looking at James and uh, Jude in the family and saying, you know, if those boys weren't so good, then he couldn't have been good either, although we know that Jesus was sinless. And uh, he has this attitude that he's always better than the rest of us. Is he really? No, they say. He's not better than us. We know this guy. We grew up with Jesus. And we don't have that kind of respect for him. And why is he claiming to be uh, the Son of God and the Messiah? I just wonder to bring this back home to you a little bit, uh, and us, uh, us personally. Do you ever have any trouble with anybody in your family that you're trying to tell about Jesus? And you know that behind your back they talk about you and say, oh, you're a Bible thumper and you're all about Jesus, you can't do anything else, and uh, you're, you're, just, you're just weird about it. Uh, we had a person in our family that people thought he got a little weird about Jesus, like a Jesus freak kind of a guy and stuff like that. And I remember people uh, saying things behind his back that were a little uh, pejorative, I would say, and it wasn't that way at all. Uh, he, he was a good man trying to serve Jesus Christ. Do you have any family or friends who uh, like to hold your past against you? And now you're claiming to be a Christian, claiming to walk for the Lord. And ooh, somebody always brings up something out of your past. Say, well, you're no better than us. Look what you did at that time. Do you remember that time you did that? Why is it people always want to do that? Why is it if you, if you call them on something, they already have three things. It's almost like they made a list before you did that. Hey, oh, you think I'm bad? Here's some things I remember you did. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is what you did and they hold that against you. Or maybe you're the kind of person that would say, because you're down on yourself and what you did, and you know what you did, sometimes you don't like yourself, you would tell other people, and I've heard this a bunch, if you really knew what I was like inside, or if you really knew what I was like, period, you wouldn't have anything to do with me. Well, uh, this is uh, the issue that Jesus is facing and a truth that he teaches us. Jesus is going to say a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, the problem with Jesus is there is no problem with Jesus. The sin that Jesus committed when he was a kid, well, there is no sin that Jesus committed when he was a kid. And I know in our day, probably in his day, people didn't like goody two-shoes who never got in trouble, never did anything wrong, and they were always seemed to be doing the right thing. For whatever reason, the people that know you the most are going to have probably the least amount of honor for you because they remember what you're like, especially if you get advanced somewhere and they don't, and that's an issue. Well, let's look at the text and see what Jesus is dealing with. In verse 53, it says this, When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and he began teaching them in their synagogue. So where's he at? He's in Nazareth. That's his hometown. That's where he grew up. He goes back to Nazareth and he begins teaching in their synagogue. He'd been there many times before as a boy and a young man growing up. So that the result is they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They're starting to second-guess themselves. Is this who we think it is? Is this Jesus, that kid we watched grow up here? Where did he get this stuff? And so they say in verse 55, Is not this the carpenter's son? Well, it is the carpenter's son. Uh, carpenters weren't looked up to that much in their day as far as profession, but still, uh, it's an honorable profession. But isn't this the carpenter's son? In other words, how do you take a kid out of a wood shop 
and say there's anything great about him or anything good about him. What do you do about that? Is not his mother called Miriam, or Mary, we like to say, and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? And what they're saying is, now, we can't accept what this guy is because look how familiar he is. He came out of a carpenter's family. They're, they're not high on the social totem pole. They're, they're just normal people. We know the boys. We know the girls. However many Jesus had in his family, he doesn't tell us. We know all them. And uh, there's nothing special about Joseph's family. And this guy can't be special. Verse 57. And they took offense at him. What a phrase. And they took offense at him. We start out astonished with the fact that the guy teaches like nobody we've ever heard teach before. It's, it's amazing. And now we look and say, well, you know what? We look at this amazing guy. We don't want him to be better than us, whatever they said. And let's just look at his family. Isn't this a kid that came down you know, from that house that you know, is not very not very wealthy uh, as far as to look at it. It's kind of, a, kind of a shack. He's just a carpenter. He's just one of us. How dare he sit there and say that he's the son of God? How dare he say that he's something special? If he was something special, we would have noticed that growing up. Verse 57. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, telling them why they're taking offense at him, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, all right, Nazareth, and in his own household, his family. You realize, of course, that it took a while for his brothers to believe in him. Uh, they used to make fun of him. They mocked him. One time they said, oh, aren't you due down at the festival in Jerusalem? Maybe you ought to get going and show up. You don't want to be late. You know who you are. You're, you're kind of a uh, center of attraction. And he did not deny, And he did not do many miracles because of their unbelief. And we're going to learn a lesson about that. You know, as a church, we pray for things. We want things to happen. We want ministry to go forward. We want to be successful in those ministries. We want to make an impact for Jesus Christ, right? We do. And sometimes things don't work. Sometimes things don't turn out the way we wanted them to or thought they should. And one of the things we're going to learn this morning is that where there is a lack of faith, there will be a lack of God's power. There will be a lack of God's working, a lack of God's moving. So if things aren't happening for us and things aren't going for us in the ministry, one of the things we need to look at is our faith, and we'll touch on that again. In verses 53 to verse 54, we learn that Jesus continues his mission and leaves Capernaum to go to his hometown of Nazareth where he teaches in the synagogue. Now that's kind of an exegetical point because it just says everything that the text just says and it's not so much homiletical, but I want you to know Jesus doesn't give up on ministry and he keeps going. And of all the places he could go, of all the places, because he was there once and it didn't turn out so well, of all the places he could go to ministry, he goes to the synagogue in his hometown where everybody knows him, where people know his family, and they think they know his history and his background. They really don't. A man by the name of uh, Louis Barbieri, Dr. Barbieri, pointed out that there was a prior mission trip to Nazareth that Jesus took. And uh, that is recorded in Luke's gospel, but not in this one here. 
So I want to see what happened. Let's, let's go look in Luke chapter 4, and let's see what happened the last time Jesus decided to preach to the hometown crowd. Uh, the young man this morning mentioned it up there on the screen. Luke 4, 16 to 29. And it says this, And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. So he's doing what a rabbi would do. He's doing what a teacher would do. He's in his hometown. He's going he's to preach. He's going to teach the word of God. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. I always wondered if Jesus said, hand me the prophet Isaiah's scroll. You know? Or they just picked a scroll out and handed it to him. I think Jesus could do well with either one of those. He either has something in his mind, or they just hand him a book, and he goes to a prophetic section about the Messiah. Anyway... The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. It's it's actually a scroll, right? The spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord." Everybody's okay with that so far. It's just reading out of the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet. That's it. But Jesus is going to do something with this. He's going to make him mad. And so that's to come here. And he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. Where did he sit down? At the front of the synagogue. There was a chair there. And it was called the seat of Moses. Because that's where teaching took place from the law. So Jesus took an authoritative seat at the front of the synagogue in the seat of Moses. And he sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Why? Well, because he's about to teach and because it's an exciting passage. And he began to say to them, and this is where they start having trouble, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And some of them were wondering what he meant by that. And some of them knew what he meant by that. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's special about this day? Well, apparently because Jesus is there. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, isn't this guy Joseph's son? (laughs) Come on, where did all this come from? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. You know what that means? You're telling us how to live. You're telling us what we should do and what we should believe. Why don't you apply that to your own life, Jesus? Why don't you do it? We know your family. We know what you're like. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now it's a test. Uh, Do all these miracles that you've been doing. Do some of the things you did elsewhere. Let's see if you're really the real thing. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Now that's the same thing he's going to say the second time he's there, which is where we're at in Matthew. But I say to you in the truth, There were many many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elisha was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath, the land of Sidon, which is not Israel, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the land in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, another Gentile. 
And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. How dare this hometown boy, who really isn't that special, come along and say God cared more and did more for Gentile unbelievers than he did for the people of Israel. Now you've picked on the whole family of Israel. Now we're upset, and now we're going to do something about it. So they got up. They drove him out of the city. And the well, and I got to stand where uh, this hill is at, uh, above Nazareth. And, you, uh, you know, it's changed a little bit. You know, it's, it's eroded and things like that. But you wouldn't want to fall off that hill. And they got up and drove him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. And I was going to stop reading there, but here's the great part. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Get out of here. You got this mob of angry people. We just came out of the synagogue. We're going to murder Jesus. We take him up this cliff to push him off. And the text says, and Jesus went through their midst. <laughs> How'd you do that? Everybody's after you. They're trying to kill you. How did you do that? We did that because it wasn't his time to die. And God let him walk through. And he went his way. Well, Dr. Barbieri is trying to remind us that... Uh, there was an occasion where they were saying to Jesus, physician, heal yourself. And Jesus had anticipated the cynicism of the crowd. Cynicism is an attitude of continual disbelief. Jesus anticipated the cynicism of the crowd in which they were thinking, you have problems too, Jesus. Why don't you take care of yourself? Well, there's a problem, all right. There's a heart problem. Or maybe more than one. In the hometown people. This despite the fact that Jesus can do things they cannot do. Teach in ways he can, they cannot teach. And they can't do miracles. And there's a heart problem. Jesus didn't have a problem. Well, except one. The problem of unbelief in people's hearts. That's his big problem. And it's with others. So Jesus gets to Nazareth and he goes to the local synagogue that he grew up in and he attended all the time. He is well known there and his family is well known. Maybe they're judging him based on what the other boys in the family were like. I don't know. It doesn't say. That's a possibility. But he began teaching them. His love is amazing in that he is now willing to try go, to go reach the very people that tried to kill him the last recorded time that he was in town. And that shows you how much love Jesus has and how amazing it is. Would you go back to them? If the town decided to turn against you and didn't want anything to do with you and said you didn't know what you were doing, you're a hometown boy, we want nothing to do with you because we know you, quit acting like you're good, would you go back there? Well, in verse 40, 54, I'm sorry, the second part of that, in verse 56, despite being astonished at Jesus' teaching and power, they question where he got his abilities. So two responses were prompted by the teaching of, his, of this hometown son. The first is that they were absolutely astonished at his ability to teach the word. Nobody teaches like this guy. Who is he? The word is used of those who are filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. So this really, this really got to them. They're filled with wonder. This seems to have brought up the question, well, then where did he get these abilities? Who is this guy? 
The question of where the man got his wisdom and abilities to do miraculous powers reveals their issue. There is astonishment that Jesus does so well. They couldn't accept that, not from Jesus. They had no idea what Jesus was really like. They had no idea of his childhood. You know, there's not a preacher in America or around the world that doesn't have a past somewhere that didn't do things they shouldn't have done. And people know it. And the hometown knows it. But that isn't true of Jesus. Did any one of those people know that there was a time when Jesus was 12 years old, a young man, that we were all heading back from Jerusalem, and, and uh, Joseph and Mary look around, and they say, Where, where's Jesus? We thought he was with his friends. We, what, what's going on here? They end up going all the way back to Jerusalem, and what was he doing? He's in the temple. What's he doing in the temple? He's talking with the religious elders of Israel about the word of God. He's 12. Now, I've seen some sharp 12-year-olds, but nothing like Jesus. And they said, what are you doing to us? Why, why didn't you come with us? He said, well, didn't you know I was supposed to be in my father's house? <laughs> Talking with the most learned men in the country about the word of God, and I haven't been to theology school yet? They had no idea about that. So they go to the drawing board to figure out this incongruency, uh, and it didn't add up to them. Uh, they do, to their credit, at least admit he's a wise teacher and a miracle worker. That much they, they had to admit. It is also the fact that uh, those facts didn't soften their opinion of Jesus. They didn't make him say, hey, maybe we're wrong about this. Maybe we ought to reconsider. They didn't do that at all. And by the way, the teaching of God's word should reveal God's amazing wisdom. Unless it's the preacher's, then it's not so amazing. But God's wisdom is amazing. That's, that's what Jesus revealed. That's what we're reading in this text. Well, in verse 56a, first off, this is Joseph, the carpenter's son, right? Mark 6.3 puts it this way. Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary. So uh, apparently, Jesus was also known as a carpenter. He grew up with a carpenter. He took on his dad's trade. That's what you did. And he's, he's done some carpentry work. This guy's just a carpenter. How did he become one of, the, one of the greatest teachers they've ever heard? And he's not even been schooled. He hasn't been to any of the rabbinical schools. How does he know this stuff? A church father by the name of Justin in the second century said, uh, Joseph built plows and yokes for oxen. And so that's probably what Jesus did growing up. He could probably put together a pretty good plow and some yokes. Well, for further identification, because they know that, they make sure that they're talking about the right family. Now, wait a minute. All right, we got this going on, okay? Uh, don't we know his mom? In the Bible, her name is Miriam. We call her Mary. And his brothers, whom we all know, we're well acquainted with his brothers, friends. We know what these guys are like. James and Joseph, Simon and Judas... And he also has some sisters. The Bible doesn't tell us how many. But we know them as well. I don't know what kind of kids these were. Joseph and Mary were godly people, but that doesn't guarantee the kids will be, does it? None of these were apostles, but later both James and Jude wrote epistles each when they finally, probably after the resurrection, came to believe that Jesus, hey, whoo, this guy really is who he said he was. Okay, verse 56b. 
He is just a nondescript. Isaiah said, this is not the kind of guy you're going to look at and say, wow, he's a king. Look at the way this guy looks, like they did with Saul. He's taller than everybody. He's handsome. This guy must be the king. Isaiah said, we just looked at Jesus. He had no stately form that we would be drawn to him. He's a plain, plain Jewish young man, nondescript, a nothing special kid from a working class family. So where does he get these abilities? No one seriously considers that he could really be what he says he is, the son of God. Well, we've heard stories about Mary's pregnancy around town here. Uh, don't forget that. No one seriously considers that he could really be who he said he is. They conclude there is nothing innately unique about this man, so how is he doing these things? It can't be him. It can't be the one. It can't be the Messiah. In verse 57, they took offense at him because they drew this conclusion. He's nobody. He's acting like he's somebody. But Jesus said to them, because he knows what they're doing, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own family, his own household. They were offended at Jesus, and Jesus knew why. That's verse 57. After reasoning through what the non-special nature of Jesus was, they became offended. Why offended? Offended conveys the idea of being repelled by someone and brought to a downfall, which here is going to be the downfall of disbelief. Why are they offended? Well, why are you offended when somebody else from your family or somebody else in the community achieves and you don't, gets promoted and you don't, gets recognized in the world and, and you don't? Why are they offended? It's, it's not because Jesus is a fraud. The problem lies with them. They admit his wisdom but still go from astonishment to abhorring them. How come nobody ever stopped and said, hey, let's give God a little credit. He can work in the lives of our young people and change them. They, they don't have to be stuck with who they are when they were little or when they were young. Can't God do a miracle in our life? We all like to believe that God can do a miracle in our life or look what we would be. And he does. And he changes us. And he loves us. And he makes us worth something in, in eternity. They admit he's wise, but they went from astonishment to abhorring the guy, from having admiration to being repulsed by him. They moved from wonder into wickedness. They know his teaching is overwhelmingly astounding, but they refuse to believe him. What are their problems? Well, they're prideful, saying, how dare you claim you're something special? You're ordinary like us. We know your family, kid. There is jealousy and envy. Jealousy is deadly, even eternally so. It will be the driving force for the religious leaders who put Jesus to death for the same reason. Pilate, an unbeliever, who gave the final okay for Jesus to be crucified, knew that it was because of envy the Jewish leaders were killing this guy. And that fits into what we are learning here. 
We are also about caution today with teachers, aren't we? Teachers of the Word of God. Where teachers are concerned, we are. There is a time and a place for that caution, and then there is a time that there is no place for it. This would have been the time with Jesus' teaching. We also know that there are amazing intellectuals in our world today who are amazingly wrong about Jesus and Christianity. We don't trust them because they fly in the face of God's truth. Jesus is a different kind of intellectual because he knows all things and upholds God's truth no matter what. God give us the courage to be like that. Uphold his truth in the face of religious opposition that we see today. In all other places, he has honor, and he should. Consider Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah prophesied to people. Let's see, I should tell you where I'm going, right? Jeremiah 11. And even the people of his own town tried to kill him once because of what he was saying about Israel and her sin. Jeremiah 11, 21. God steps in after the people or after Jeremiah. He says, Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the men of Anathoth, that's his hometown, Jeremiah, who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of Yahweh so that you will not die at our hands. In other words, shut your mouth about what God is saying or we're going to kill you. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I'm about to punish them. The young men will die by the sword. Their sons and daughters will die by famine. And a remnant will not be left to them. For I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. Why? Because they didn't believe God's prophet. They didn't believe that what he was saying was the truth. Some time ago, one of my favorite professors passed away. And I watched his funeral. I think it was on YouTube or wherever we found it. Dr. Hendricks. And it was amazing. Uh, some of the greatest biblical scholars of our day standing up and talking about what a great man he was. And he was, he was a great man. <laughs> and then his son gets up and blows my mind. He starts talking about a dad who I have never seen. I was actually one of the teacher assistants for Dr. Hendricks. And I didn't get to get that close to him. But he said dad fought with depression his whole life. And he would sit in a chair, his favorite lazy boy, for hours, unable to move because he's completely depressed. I didn't know that, but somebody in his family knew that. And now we all know that. And it makes you think, well, the guy was just human, wasn't he? He made some mistakes, wasn't he? But that does not detract from the fact that he was a great teacher of the Word of God. There are all kinds of reasons to re reject Jesus. And all of them are insensible. And let me say inspired by Satan. And then finally in verse 58. There are great consequences for harboring unbelief in Jesus. Now we're going to go back to something I mentioned earlier. The result of their unbelief was that Jesus did not do many works of power in their midst. He did a couple, a few. But not like he did in other places, like they said. Hey, do the stuff here that you did somewhere else. This is not an issue of Jesus having an inability to do miracles. He did some. Probably for some people he really felt pity on. It's an issue of him choosing not to do many. 
And I think that Dr. Uh, Craig Blomberg is correct. Jesus is not willing to work wonders just to satisfy skeptics, and I would add, nor to satisfy mockers. It would seem to reason that he could say that God allows our unbelief to limit his activity among us. It would seem reasonable from the text of Scripture to say God is going to limit what he does for people who won't believe or won't obey. How important is the truth? Well, from Hebrews 11.6, it says, And without faith it's impossible to please him. For one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be the one who rewards those who seek him. I wonder if one of our ministries in this church didn't go over because of a lack of belief, a lack of faith, a lack of a willingness to follow God. When we limit our faith and our belief in God, God will limit what he does in our midst or in the midst of any other group of Christians who have come together to advance the ministry, not to inhibit it. Mark 6.3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracles there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And here's what I want you to catch. Verse 6. And he wondered at their unbelief. (laughs) Put that together, it's so silly for us. It is so ridiculous. They were astonished at his teaching. And he was astonished that you don't believe. You don't obey. I think I can rightly say that God never honored unbelief. And what's encouraging to me is that one could be the best teacher in the world and still not convince people the truth because they're blinded by the enemy, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. I wonder if he ever was amazed at my unbelief. I don't want him to be. Do you? Not about mine, but yours. (laughs) Has he ever been amazed at how I've done this for you and this for you? I worked this out for you. I've done everything for you. I died for you. Sorry, Lord. Just can't believe that. Doesn't count. Well, think of this passage when your family won't listen to you when you talk about Jesus. Or they make fun of you as you try to reach them with the truth. Note especially, Jesus cared about them, and he went back a second time. Why would you go back to Nazareth after the first, you know, cliff episode? He didn't give up. He didn't give up. And you and I shouldn't either with those family and those friends. Faith has always been and forever will be the victory, your victory in service to Jesus. Let me leave you these applications. 
before the kids storm the door there. Number one, our toughest ministry can be our hometown ministry or our family. Have faith. Be courageous. Secondly, if my allergies don't end me right here, can you imagine people claiming Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about? Can you imagine people claiming the Bible's out to lunch? God doesn't know what he's talking about. Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. And I want to remind you that Christians do that every day. When they decide to go a direction, he said, don't go. Thirdly, Jesus was not some ordinary kid from a nothing town. He is the Son of God from heaven. And lastly, Matthew 8.10. Let me just read that. God will keep your lunch safe in the oven. Now when Jesus heard this, talking to a Gentile, he marveled. And he said to those who were following him, Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith ouch, with anyone in Israel. I haven't found this faith in any Jew that I've ever met with this Gentile. What if we had the kind of faith that Jesus is impressed with? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are our helper, you are our guide. You are the one who gives us strength. You're the one who does miracles in our midst. You're the one who heals the sick. You are the one who watches over us and keeps us safe. Forgive us for those times when we did not believe. Forgive us for those times when we treated you like you were an ordinary human being and weren't also the son of God. Forgive us for those times when we are about to do something we know is wrong but we do it anyway and treat your word like it doesn't matter. Father, help us to be the kind of people that recognize you will help us in our ministries. You will uphold us. You will perform miracles in moving mountains so that we can do what you want us to do. And that's our heart together. That's our heart as individuals. We don't want to be like the people of Nazareth. We want to be like the people of other places that accepted him and loved him and did what he said. Let that be us. I prayed in Jesus' precious name, knowing that that's what you want for us. So we're in your will. In your name we pray. Amen.